0: Open your Bibles up to 1st Peter, chapter 5, 1st Peter 5, 1st Peter 5. This is our final sermon in 1st Peter. It's been quite a journey this year. I think pretty much took us one year to get through it, so praise God for that, and I hope it has been a blessing to you. 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, one day, a Christian and an atheist were having a, a debate about the existence of God. And the atheist said, I can prove there is no God. So the Christian said, okay, go ahead. And the atheist said, okay. If there is a God, then I call on him right now to strike me dead. And So the atheist and the Christian waited... And nothing happened. So the atheist said, ha, see, I told you, there's no God. And the Christian replied, actually, you just proved what God is like. He's a God of grace. And today, we're speaking about God's grace, the God of all grace. The reality is, our very existence, the fact that you are sitting here, that you're alive, that you're breathing, that you hopefully got breakfast this morning or coffee, or whatever it is, the fact that you are here is because of the grace of God. We call that common grace or general grace. And every person who is alive experiences some measure of God's grace. So that blue circle, oval, it encompasses all people who are alive. God's grace created humans God's grace gave them this planet to live on. And God gives that grace to to live freely. No human has done anything to earn life, to be able to exist. You're given life by God's grace. You're given your physical existence by God's grace. God's grace is the most powerful force in the universe. It's a force that cannot be measured. It's a force though that, surges through every molecule in our universe, every part of space, every moment in time, holding all things together, together sustaining your very existence. That's God's common grace for you. But then there's a different supernatural grace that each of us needs, that each of our souls need, and that's called Saving grace. This is grace that calls you to Christ. This is grace that causes your soul to be born again into the family of God. This is grace that grants you faith. This is grace that takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes that to your soul. This is grace that transforms you. This is grace that will one day transform your entire person to be like Jesus Christ. This is a special saving grace applied to your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today we're in first Peter chapter one, verse 10 through 14 where our focus is on verse 10. You'll see in there that God is called the God of all grace. And that includes common grace and this special saving covenantal grace. Verse 10, look at verse 10, you can see he writes here a conclusion to this letter. Speaks about suffering for the last time. But you look at verse 11, you can see he ends with this doxology, one last doxology. And he finalized the letter, verses 12 through 14, with a greeting and a benediction. In these final verses, these five final verses, Peter encourages the church to trust God to give them the most important thing, the most powerful work, the most needed work of God in your life. What is that? What is it? What is the most powerful work that you need in your life from God? What is the most powerful thing that God can do for you? Well, he gives that answer here in first Peter chapter five, verses 10 through 14. Would you stand with me as I read aloud God's word. First Peter chapter five verses 10 through 14. The Bible says. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote in verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Will himself. Restore. Confirm. Confirm. Strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. By Silas, a faithful brother. Silvanus, sorry, Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. I have written briefly to you. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon. Babylon who is likewise chosen, this is the church of, uh, in Rome, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, is really his son in the faith, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father, we enter into this time where we listen to your words, and we ask your spirit will move in our hearts And what we need more than anything else right now is we need your grace. So I pray, Lord, we will humble our hearts before you and we'll trust the words of grace, the word of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The grace of God is your greatest need and your greatest blessing. Grace is the most powerful force, as I said earlier, in the universe. It was by grace that Jesus came into this world. He was born of a virgin. By grace, he lived a perfect life. It was the grace of God that caused Jesus to go to that cross, die on the cross for your sins. And it was grace that raised him to new life. It's grace that repels Satan from the presence of a believer It's grace that transforms the vilest sinner into a blood-washed holy saint of God. It's grace that's going to take you from where you are to where God wants you to go. Every person needs this valuable work of God, and that is the work of grace. And in verse 10, you can see the Bible says that God is a God of all grace. That's his very character. That's who he is is. And that's why in verse 10, he says, these are the things that God does for you. It comes from his grace. The Look at verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God is a God of grace. And because he is this, therefore, this is what his grace does for you. If, in fact, look down in verse 12. Peter informs us that Silvanus, or Silas, is another way to say it. Silas, a fellow worker, served alongside of him, probably wrote, uh, dictated, probably Peter dictated the letter, and Silas wrote this letter as Peter was telling him what to write down. So he was a fellow worker, and notice how Peter summarizes his letter in verse 12. He says, I have written briefly to you, this is speaking of this letter, exhorting and declaring that this is the what? This is the True grace of God. What is the letter of 1 Peter about? In Peter's own handwritten words. It's about the grace of God. So how should you respond to the grace of God? What does he say? You should, in verse 12, you should stand firm in it. So my proposition here this morning for us is that Peter concludes this letter and summarizes his exhortations by putting God's grace On display for us. His final conclusion proclaims what we have on the screen here, and that is that the grace of God is your greatest need and your greatest blessing. God's grace, church, should be our greatest prayer. We should pray for God's grace. God's grace is our grace is our only hope. Your spiritual life depends upon God's grace. If you don't have, listen to this, if you don't have the grace of God in your life, the saving grace of God in your life, you are hopeless, completely destitute, and lost, and spiritually dead. So then, probably the next question to ask is then, what is grace? I put my own definition up here on the screen. Most common, the most common definition is grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace comes from the Greek word charis, which means favor or kindness. The idea of grace goes beyond just kindness. It's kindness to someone who doesn't deserve the kindness. So the idea of grace here from God is that God is kind to you, that he, has a, he does a loving work for those who don't earn it, who don't deserve it, who have not merited it. And so I just did a, a simple definition because it helps me understand what grace is. And that is that gra- grace is God's work of love. It's a work of love to those who do not deserve it to those who have not earned it. Well, what do we deserve? If we haven't deserved grace, then what do we deserve? Well, as rebels against the Holy God, what do we deserve? We deserve, first of all, to not live another moment on this planet. But we deserve not to take another breath. We deserve to be expelled from this planet. But most, most horrifically, we deserve to be separated from God forever. That's what we deserve and so for the sinner who humbles himself before God and faith in his son, Jesus Christ, grace is a beautiful word. In fact, it's probably the most beautiful word that we've ever heard because grace is what saves us. Grace gives us the most blessed gift that we could ever receive. And that is a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say it like this. God's grace is God's work for a sinner that blesses him and brings him into a relationship with God. In other words, everything that God has done for you to bring you into a relationship with him is called grace. His work in the past, his work now, his work in the future, it's all grace. Peter loved this idea, this truth of grace. In fact, just look at a couple of verses with me. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter, I think, loved the work of grace because he experienced grace in his life, didn't he? I mean, if anyone deserved to be separated from Christ, it was Peter. He denied Christ, right? He lied that he even knew Christ. He said, I don't know this guy. I don't have a relationship with him. And if anyone deserved to be punished for that, it was Peter. But God actually gave him grace, forgave him, restored him. And he had a relationship with the Lord and he's in his presence. Now look at first Peter one, two, the Bible says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter says, I'm praying for grace for the church. And then look at verse 10. Peter taught that salvation is given to us by grace. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets, that's the Old Testament who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So this salvation that has come to us is by God's grace. Look at verse 13. Peter commanded us to meditate on the grace of God. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. And what grace is this? The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So put your mind upon the grace of what Christ will do for you when he comes back. Look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Chapter 3 and verse 7. The Bible speaks to relationships, the relationships of a husband and a wife. Husbands and wife, they have different roles, but they're equal in regard to God's grace. Verse 7, they are heirs with you of the grace of, of God, the grace of life. So God doesn't like men more, or he doesn't like women more. He doesn't have a favorable gender, okay? There's only two genders. He doesn't have a favorable gender, He actually looks at both of them and says, both of them can equally share in the grace of life. There are different roles, but they are equal in regard to God's grace. Look at verse 10, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse 10. Every person in the church, every person who has been brought into the family of God has a gift of grace. As each has received a gift. This is the singular form for grace. So each has received a grace Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or multiple grace. So God gives us each grace so that we can grace one another. And then look at chapter 5 and verse 5. God gives grace to the humble. The end of verse 5, kind of beat this one the past couple weeks, haven't we? But verse 5 God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. To the humble. And then we conclude down in chapter 5, verse 10 He is therefore the God of all grace. If I were to invite you to our house, you would sit around our table, and we don't generally have a lot of drinks we offer. It's pretty much water and milk, and sometimes we get like a spindrift or something, okay? So you don't have a lot of options in our house. But if you came and sat around our table, we would probably have a pitcher of cold water with ice in it. And if we were to take that pitcher and you were to ask to have some water, We would take that picture and we'd pour out and what would come out? It's pretty obvious. Water. But why is that? Because that's what's inside. And when you turn to God and you say, God, pour into my life, what comes out from God to you? You know what it is? It's grace for the believer. It's grace. Why is that? Because that's who God is. If your view of God is as a believer in Jesus Christ, if your view of God is he's constantly angry at you, he's always looking for an opportunity to punch you and do something to you, you have a wrong view of God. God's actually disposition and action toward you as the humble believer before Christ is to pour out his kindness into your soul because that is who he is. So what do you need? What do you need? Grace. That's right. You get the prize. So God's grace is our greatest need and our greatest blessing. So let's talk about what that looks like in the life of a believer. First of all, notice God's grace gives you perspective. It gives you perspective. Look at verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First, notice the grace of God gives you perspective during times of suffering. Remember the purpose of this letter, of 1 Peter, is to comfort a church and encourage a church that's going through suffering. Peter didn't write this letter to say, hey, you need to escape from suffering. Like, hey, let me tell you how to get away from suffering. He's saying, no, I want you to trust the grace of God while you are suffering. That's the point of his letter. He wants them to know that suffering is a part of this world. I mean, we live in a sin-cursed world, so there will be suffering. So if you go, why is there suffering around us? Well, that's the world we live in. But the encouragement is that it's just for a little while. Now, what does he mean in verse 10 when he says, after you have suffered a little while? Well, a little while refers to the duration of the suffering. It's only for a little while. Now, how long is that? Now, it depends on your perspective, doesn't it? If you have a four-year-old in your house and you say that you're going to give them a cookie in a little while, how long is that for a four-year-old? Eternity. That's right, eternity. Yeah. If, if you're thinking like half hour, an hour, that's not a little while in their mind, right? In fact, they're probably going to ask you every 10 seconds, is a little while up yet, right? If you're older more seasoned in life, a couple years under your belt, if you want to say it that way. If you're older, you might say, you know, it was just a little while ago that I was your age, or just a little while ago this happened to me. What do you mean by that? You don't mean a couple minutes ago. You mean a couple of years ago, for some people a lot more than a couple years ago. It it depends on your perspective. So how long is a little while in this verse? Well, look at verse 10. He says, he contrasts your life with Eternal glory. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. So how long is a little while of your life compared to eternity with God? And if you contrast your life, how long do you think you're going to live? Some of you, frankly, you're going to have 20, 30 more years. If Lord doesn't come back by then, some of you might only have days. There could be someone in this room listening to me, and you only have a couple days to live. You don't even know it. You don't know how long you have to live. Maybe you could live to the ripe old age of 100. But even that, even think of 100 years compared to eternity, that 100 years is only but for a little while. And this perspective then, therefore, changes how you view life. If you view life as this is all there is, and when I die, it's the end, then that's going to affect, therefore, how you live your life now. You're going to try to live for yourself and do everything you can to enjoy your life now because this is all there is. And you're going to try to avoid any kind of suffering possible. You're going to look for the perfect paradise on this planet where there's no suffering, and you're going to put all your money, all your resources in to make sure that you can do that. I think that's the reason our world right now, the reason our world is so focused on being contained in a bubble and to say, to try to remove any kind of suffering from their life is because of this right here. It's it's the the worst thing that could happen to people on this earth is that they could die. That's the mindset of the people of this world. And therefore, they're going to do everything they can to prevent that from happening. And so even to the fact where you shut your entire life down, Right, and, and I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying that you should go out and try to get sick or get people sick. But the point is, this is the perspective of this world. And if this is all there is to live for, then you're going to do everything you can. You're going to spend every dime to make sure you can extend your life as long as possible. Because this is all there is. But for the Christian, again, we don't invite suffering in, into our life. But we don't spend all of our money. We don't spend all of our time trying to avoid suffering. We know it's going to be here. We know it's part of this world that we're living in. We steward our time. We steward our resources for what? For the life that's to come. For eternity. Because we recognize this is only for a little while. And hey, if I can extend it for two or three more years, frankly, in light of eternity, what does that matter? What's most important thing for me right now is I need to steward what God has given me and live to seek first the kingdom of God. I mean, even just think about this past year. Would you say that most Christians in the past year, would you say most Christians used their time to advance the kingdom of God and to become more like Christ? Think about it. We had one year. That's a little time. We had one year of our life. Did people, did the church of Jesus Christ, did they use it to advance the gospel? Did they use it to become more like Christ or did they use it just to try to survive another day and sink deeper into the mire of entertainment? And I think we have to recognize that we only have a little while. How much time, how much time as Christians do we waste trying to avoid the suffering in this world? When actually our number one mission should be the kingdom of God and to trust God with our lives. In the late 1800s, there was a man named C.T. Studd. He was a famous cricket player in England. He was a young man, and so he um, was looking at the quote-unquote prose back then. I mean, his, he had life kind of set for him. He was very talented. He was in the newspapers. He was making money. Came from a pretty wealthy family. But when he came to Christ, the grace of God changed his life. And he decided that he was going to use his life and everything that he received from the Lord, all of his resources, to further the gospel. And so he got married and moved to China with his wife. People plead with him, told him he was crazy, like you have a, a great life ahead of you here, you have a great future, you're a great athlete. But he moved there and started churches. Many people came to Christ. At the age 25, he received a huge inheritance from his father who had passed away. And he was set for life. I mean, he could have gone to his own, you know, deserted island or whatever. He could have lived the dream life, if you want to say it that way. But he didn't. He actually gave every penny of that away to the church and to missions. He came back at some point to England to care for some needs he had. And then uh, when he was going to go back out, he went back to India. And there he, with his family, faced many, many difficulties, suffered in many ways. But he saw Christ use him to see churches started, to see the gospel go out. He came back to England because he was struggling with some sickness and he needed to see some doctors. And there was some help for him, but in the end of the day, they said, you know, probably it's best for you just to come back and just live the rest of your life in England. You know, you've done a lot for Christ. So, you know, his doctor was a Christian. He's like, just stay here. You know, I'm not going to sign you off to go back to India. It's not a good place for you to be. But he had a desire to use his entire life for Christ, not just a portion of it. And he saw that there was a, an ad in some kind of Christian magazine that said, come and help give the gospel to cannibals in Africa. So he signed up, and he went to Africa, even though his doctor said, don't go. He went to Africa. He gave the gospel there. He saw churches started in the Congo, and people came to Christ. This man kept going on and on for Christ. He lived to the age of 71, serving Christ up until that age, until he died in 1931. And he viewed his life as only a little while, and he famously once said, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's a perspective of someone who knows the grace of God in their life. Now, how old are you? Now, don't answer out loud. I don't want to embarrass anyone here, but how old are you? How many years? How many years? How many even weeks? How much, how much time do you think you have left on this planet? No matter your age, no matter who you are, no matter if you're the youngest kid in this room, you only have a little while. And the question is, what are you going to do with that little while? God's grace should compel you to invest every moment, every resource for the next life to come. So God's grace also has called and saved you for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, and he says, who has called you? The verb has called is in the aorist tense, and it points to a point in time when God called you to be saved. This calling in verse 10 is to be distinguished from the general call. Christ when he was on this earth and in the gospels and in the new Testament, we see this general call for all to come and repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your soul. So come to Christ. Everyone's invited to repent and believe the gospel. There's a general call, but then there's a special specific effectual call to come alive for a soul to come alive and here we see that in verse five, chapter 5, verse 10. It's a call that awakens the soul to spiritual life in Christ. In fact, let's do this again. This is kind of fun. So let's do this again. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Just notice this call of Christ, this effectual call of Christ upon the life of a believer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. We see this call. The Bible says, but as he who... Called you is holy, so God, the Holy One, uh, chapter one, verse fifteen. As he who called you is holy, so be you holy. So God, he called you into his family for what purpose? So that you would be his holy child and be holy. Look at chapter two, verse nine. First Peter two nine. But uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people for his own possession. So he's speaking of the church. And the end of verse 9, he says, and that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called. And what is that? To be like Christ, to follow his example. So he's called you uh, into spiritual life in Christ so that you would follow him in his example. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless for to this, you were called. You were called so that you may obtain a blessing. So the calling in these verses, you can go back to chapter five, verse 10. The calling in these verses is God's call to awaken the dead soul and give him spiritual life. This call here. Reminds me of the story of Lazarus. Remember when Jesus called out and awakened the body of, a Lazarus, of, of Lazarus? Lazarus was his friend. Lazarus was in a tomb. He had been in a tomb for four days. His body was rotting at that time after four days. Think about it. His body would have smelled. There had been bugs that would have come into his body and started eating his flesh. Trying to get a little sick so you can understand the seriousness of this. He was dead. Dead, dead. Not coming back again, Right? I mean, his body was decomposing there in that tomb. And a crowd from the town was surrounding the tomb. They rolled the stone away. Jesus stood in front of the stone. And what did he say? He prayed. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And it was at that moment when Christ called that Lazarus' body went from decomposing back to life again. That calling of Christ was energized by the grace of God. God's grace reached into that tomb, put his soul back in his body, repaired every cell in his body, and brought him back to life. So much so that he got up and walked out. The Bible says, Jesus says, unbind him, let him go, let him go live. And he was alive again. Lazarus was brought forth by the call of Christ, by the grace of God. And that calling of Lazarus' body back from the dead, it's a great illustration of what Christ does to our soul. He called out, Lazarus come forth and his dead body came to life. And when we are called into salvation in Jesus Christ, he calls out and he brings our soul to life. Which means what? That means before that, your soul was dead. And the Bible says every person enters into this world spiritually dead. Their souls are dead. That means they don't have a relationship with God. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're following their own life. They're trusting their own ideas, their own path. They're spiritually dead. And they need the grace of God to resurrect their soul. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive. That call went out together with Christ. And it's, how is it done? It's by grace, by grace, you're saved. So it's God's grace that energizes our soul to come to life. And the only way, listen, the only way that you can have a relationship with God, the only way you can have your sins forgiven is if God's grace comes into your life and resurrects your soul, otherwise you remain dead in your trespasses and sins. And that moment we call regeneration, regeneration. When I was 15 years old, I grew up in a, a pastor's home, and I went to a camp at 15, and before that, I was spiritually dead. I looked like a Christian, I talked like a Christian, I smiled like a Christian. I sat in church, I had my Bible open, and took notes like a Christian up until the age of 15. And as I listened to someone speaking, I recognized that my soul was dead. And I cried out to God for his grace. And I believe that was a day my soul was awakened by the grace of God. For by grace, he goes on to say, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God's grace is the only work that can save you. Listen, friend, you cannot save yourself. If you came this morning to think you're going to get another sticker in your book for God so you can go to heaven, it's not going to happen. Like God does not save you because of your works. It's not your doing. It's only because of the grace of God. And God's grace comes through faith to those who humble themselves before God and say, Jesus Christ, you're the only way. You're the only truth. You're the only life. Save my soul. So God's grace is what we need to save our souls. God's grace will glorify you. Look at verse 10, chapter five, verse 10. The grace of God, the God of all grace, he says, who has called you, the middle part of that verse, I'm starting there. Who has called you, so this is a look back to the grace that resurrected your soul, to his eternal glory in Christ. That's a look to the future, to God's grace that will resurrect your body. So in other words, God's grace is what saved us in the past. And it's God's grace that keeps us saved. And it's God's grace that guarantees our final salvation. And look at, If you look at the verse there, he says, eternal glory. Eternal glory refers to the blessing of living forever in the presence of God. Living in his glory, receiving his grace, and having your body and your life glorified. In other words, you receive a resurrected body, you live in a resurrected world, and that's a promise for those who are, as he says in verse 10, in Christ. The glory, to the the uh, eternal glory in Christ. So look at that, he says in verse 10, the God of all grace has called you to his Eternal glory in Christ. And this speaks of those who are in a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. This means then that the blessings of eternal glory, the blessings of being with Christ are only for those who are, the blessings of eternal glory are only for those who are in Christ. Let me ask you this question. If you were to die today, if you were to die today, what gives you assurance That you will be in glory with Jesus Christ. If I were to have you come up on the stage here and I were to say to you, okay, what gives you confidence that your soul will be with Christ if you died tonight? What would you say to that? If you're a believer, the answer is this. It's grace. It's grace. God's grace called you, saved you. And God's grace is the only hope that will carry you to glory. And if your answer is anything related to yourself, if the answer is anything related to what you do or what you are doing or what you hope to do, if it's your works, if it's your religious deeds, or if it's because of how you grew up as a Christian, then you're not trusting the grace of God. And so I would call you as Christ does to come to him and to trust in his grace. And then last God's grace strengthens, sustains and strengthens you. God's grace sustains and strengthens you. But look at verse 10. He says. After you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you. So he called us to salvation. To his eternal glory. That's looking forward. Grace will propel us to eternal glory after we die. In Christ. Will. And this is now speaking about now. Until death. Or until the return of Christ. Will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 10 is a verse for the suffering Christian. It's a verse for all of us, but I'm telling you, if you're suffering, if you're feeling the weight of guilt from your sin, if you're feeling the weight of physical stress, if you're feeling the weight of pressure from the world, this is a gift to you because this verse tells us that the God of all grace is on your side. He sustains you. He strengthens you. He is for you. You might have, Christian, you might have family who are against you. Maybe throughout this whole week, you felt just the spiritual attacks of Satan upon your soul. Maybe you're physically just feel like you're being pulled back to the bed, (laughs) like you just cannot get out of bed, you feel so maybe spiritually low, you're physically hurting, maybe you just are so uncertain about the next few weeks or years, you should look at this verse and meditate on it, pray on it, and trust that Christ is for you. His grace is working on your behalf. His work of love, his work of grace is for you and for me, to those who don't deserve it. I love verse 10, how the order of the, ver- the words are here. Notice how God himself is the one who does the work for us. I mean, he like emphasizes this. He says, he says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, notice how that stands out before restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. He himself, it's God himself who is holding on to you by his grace. Our family likes to go for hikes, and so sometimes we go on these hills, you know, and these, those big rocks, and the kids like to climb up the rocks, or sometimes we go to the coast, you know, you have those little cliffs that you can look over, and when you, when you do that kind of stuff with kids, especially when they're really small, you get a little nervous, and so if you go up one of the rocks, maybe you're, you might be, like, holding the kid or pushing them as they're going up, or holding their hand to help them get up, even if you don't want to climb the rock yourself, you might be doing that. Why? Because you want to protect them, right? Or if you're by the cliff over there, especially if they're really small, and you're by the coast, and you're looking over, like you might actually hold on, maybe hold their hand, or physically hold the entire child, you know? And the wind could be blowing against them. That kid could be wiggling. But you know the danger, right? So you're not going to let go of that, of that child. You are holding on to that child. And I think that's a great picture of what God does for us. The winds of suffering may blow. The temptations may even cause us to think that we are away from Christ already. Maybe he doesn't love us anymore, but God himself, his arms of grace are actually still wrapped around us. And he promises nothing can tear us away from his grace. I think these four verbs here are are synonyms of each other. Some people kind of break them up. That could be the case. I don't really know. I just think that they all have so much similarities. I think they're He's saying all these verbs for emphasis. And so I think what he's doing here is he's saying he wants to emphasize that God himself is the one who keeps you, who sustains you, who holds on to you from now until death or now until Christ comes back. So he says the God of all grace will do what? He will himself restore us. This word restored is used to speak of a fishing net that's being repaired or something that's broken, that's being mended. So this is what God is doing for you and to you. God is repairing you. He's mending you. He's making you to be like Jesus Christ. He's taking the image of God in you that has been distorted by sin. And he's making you to the image of Jesus Christ. His work is to conform us. The word conform is translated in other places as strengthen. So kind of confusing. because That's the next word we have there. But this idea of of confirm or strengthen is the idea of holding something up. I saw that there was a, a good illustration of this in the book of Exodus, Exodus 17, 12, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. There, um, we found, you can actually find this word that's used here for confirm in the account of Moses. Remember, Moses had to have his hands lifted up, and so Aaron and Hur were on either side, and they were there to support him, and he was too weak to lift his own arms up, the Bible says in Exodus 17, 12, that Moses' hands were heavy. He was weak, in other words. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. And thus, his hands were steady until the sun set. And that word supported is that word right there. It's like it confirmed, it, it held it up. And What a great picture of what the grace of God does to us. When we are sinking down, we feel so low, it's God who holds us. Moses was too weak to go on. He needed someone to come under him, to lift him up, to lift his arms up. And this is what God's grace does for us. We are too weak to live this life on our own strength, but God's grace comes under us and supports us and gives us strength. the next word is God's grace strengthens us. Again, this is a different word. This is more the idea that he provides uh, endurance. He gives us muscle type of strength. This is the Word that talks about God giving us strength to endure, to keep going on. And the last word you have there that describes God keeping us is God's grace establishes us, establishes us. And this speaks of a foundation. Now, do you remember the song in children's church you sang? The wise man built his house upon the rock and the sand and all that. And maybe the kids are singing that now. I should have recommended it this morning. Oh, well, maybe next time. And Jesus told that parable in Matthew chapter seven. The parable was of a person's life, and the, so the, the the life was represented by a house. A person's life, and the foundation is their belief system. And he says you should you should put your life and found your life upon God's word and upon the truth of God. And a person who does that, it's like they put their the life the foundation or the, their life is on the foundation of the grace of God's word. In fact, look at this. Verse up here, you can see Matthew 7:24. Little battery, hopefully it'll last. Who knows? It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And what is the rock? It's the words of God. It's, it's saying my belief system is in God's word. His, his grace holds me together and your life is on that. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall because it had been founded. That's the word right there. It's been established on the rock. This idea is that if you are trusting in God's word, if your life is resting upon the grace of God, God himself establishes you. He he is your foundation. Nothing can come against you. All these words, I think, again, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish are different ways of saying this. God has you, believer. He keeps you. He holds you. He will sustain you until the last breath that you take in this world. No matter what storm comes, no matter what suffering you face, God's grace, he can take that suffering, he can use it for his glory, and he himself is the one working grace on your behalf. He's the God of all grace. Unless you think that this is, wish, this is just wishful thinking on God's behalf, look at verse 11. He says, 1 Peter 5, 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Dominion is the word. For God's ultimate authority and infinite power. God's grace is loving, but it's powerful. God works his grace by his dominion. To him be dominion, power and authority forever and ever. And this is the true grace of God. This is the grace that God wants us to stand in. I'm going to finish with a story. I'm going to have Jorge come up on the piano In 1906, Dr. R.A. Torrey was traveling the world, preaching the gospel in evangelistic meetings. And he preached a sermon speaking about how God keeps us until he comes back again. How Christ keeps us until he comes back again. It was a powerful sermon. It worked in the heart of a person who was sitting there. Her name was Ada Habershon. And she listened to that sermon and meditated on the fact that God holds on to us. That God's grace keeps us even through suffering. So she wrote a hymn that was called, He Will Hold Me Fast. R.E. began to have this song sung in his evangelistic meetings. And it was a great, very popular, became very popular in the early 1900s there. Many people sang it in church and, and he had it in his revivals. One night, a young man was listening to The preaching of God's word. There are about 4,000 souls in that auditorium. And this this young man has had a great burden upon his heart. Sorrow overwhelmed his soul. He felt like a dark cloud was over his life. And he just could not get away from it. And he had had this feeling that God had abandoned him. And he was almost certain at that point that God had. God had abandoned him. And then the song began to play. And it ministered to his heart. And he said something like this afterwards. The song was the very message I needed. The thought that Christ could hold me fast, that I need not depend upon my own power or my own strength or my own good works, but that he will hold me fast was the confidence that I needed to trust in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing this song here this morning. And here's what we're going to do. I think we can sing it all together, don't you think? So Jorge is going to lead us in this song. He will hold me fast. I want you to think about the words. When I fear my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. We actually in your uh, bulletin. We have some sheet music. If you want to look at that you can. Or you can just look at it on the screen up here. When the tempter would prevail. He, would hold me, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. Through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. You can stay seated. Let's sing this together. He will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the with this thought and then we'll sing the rest of that song. The grace of God is your greatest need and your greatest blessing. How do you respond to the suffering in your life? How do you respond to the sorrow that comes upon your soul? And how you respond to that, it reveals what you're trusting. It reveals if you're trusting yourself and your own efforts or you're trusting God and his grace. If you are suffering, listen, if you're suffering and you're in a difficulty and you go to self-medicate, if for you, you have to turn the TV on to get your mind off of it, if you have to drink or ha- pop something to make sure your, your body can, can forget about it, your mind can forget about it, then you're rejecting the grace of God. Listen to this. You're rejecting the grace of God and you're looking for help, listen, from the pit of hell if you look to somewhere other than Christ. Christ. Friend, God's grace is abundant. We need to hold fast to Him. We need to go to Him in prayer, go to the gospel of grace, and trust and hold fast to God. Sometimes we can feel low, we can feel depressed, we can feel that we have this dark cloud over us, like that young man. And our response many times can be maybe to go to work and just work and work and work and try to get it off our mind that way or maybe try to control it in some, some way, maybe through anger or through other means to try to control the situation. Sometimes we can feel guilt, the guilt of our, our sin upon our hearts or maybe the guilt of your past failures and that can overwhelm your soul and our response can be that I need to maybe try harder in a particular area or be more religious or do penance and again we're, we're looking to ourselves and trusting ourselves. But God's grace is available to us. This powerful work of God is available to your heart. We need to go down to our knees spiritually. Go down into the promises of God's word and hold on to his grace. And if you're without Christ, if you're in here this morning and the word of God has pricked your heart, the Holy Spirit has pricked your heart and you realize you need Christ. Will you come to him today? and suffering Christian, and really all of us, if you feel your faith in Christ will fail, if you feel the tempter will prevail, if you feel like your soul is lost, and we all have those times, right? We're like, am I really a believer? Then go to Christ and hold fast to him and his promises. Because if you're in Christ, he's holding on to you. Let's bow our head and let's pray. I always like to Give a moment of response. And so would you just go to the Lord in prayer in your own heart? Believer, would you go to prayer to Christ and hold on to him and his promises? Let's pray. father in ourself we're lost life and spiritual life if it's depending on us it's dead it's hopeless but we're so thankful each one of us that have trusted Christ we're so thankful for the grace of Christ thank you God for your grace thank you for the grace to just be living now But most importantly, thank you for the grace that promises us life to come, promises us life in your presence. And I pray for those in this room, all of us really, who are going through pain and difficulty. God, give us your grace. We need your grace. Give us more of yourself, Lord. And I pray for that person in this room who has resisted the grace of God. They said no to your grace. God, I pray that they will humble their heart before you because your word promises you give grace to the humble. and We hold on to your promises. We hold on to Jesus Christ, your work. And we're confident that you're holding on to us. Thank you for this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.